Courageous Conversations for the Nation's Most Pressing Issues. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Friday, February 9th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we'll head to Mitchell to check in on efforts to gather community members in dialogue that connect rather than divides. How old do you have to be before making deeply personal and life-altering decisions, even those decisions your parents approve of? We'll hear lawmakers debate child marriage in their own words. Mike Thompson returns with analysis of the most recent U.S. Supreme Court arguments. That's coming up after the news. And later in the hour, we celebrate the Lunar New Year with a look back at Chinese immigrants in Deadwood, what we know about their lasting influence. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Mike Thompson returns to In the Moment now with an update on the U.S. Supreme Court. He is an associate professor of criminal justice at the University of Sioux Falls, and he is our go-to guest for all things court watching. So thank you so much because it's been somewhat of a big couple weeks here. It has. All right. Let's start with immunity. Okay. What, broadly speaking, candidate Donald Trump, former President Trump running for office, but we're still dealing with things that happened while he was in office. Um, There are so many different court cases that are sort of here and there and everywhere. So regarding immunity, ground us in what exactly we're talking about before we begin. Okay. So the the immunity case relates to the indictment he's facing in the D.C. Circuit, the federal district court in the D.C. Circuit. He's charged with, I think it's four counts in the indictment. And they all relate to conspiratorial activity to stop the Electoral College count, to change the outcome of the election. Um, <clears throat> so if it's that prosecution in which he's trying to claim that because he was president at the time these acts were committed, he should be immune from prosecution. Uh, and so the federal district court, which is the trial court, um, that court decided that he wasn't immune. And then he appealed that decision up to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And the D.C. Circuit agreed with the district court that he does not have immunity from prosecution in that indictment. So this has, I mean, it does have something to do with the campaign. But even if he had decided not to run again, this would still be happening in theory. Yes, yes, because it happened during the time he was president. Yeah. This has never been looked at challenged decided before what's new no it's a it's a, <laughs> the, his claim of uh, absolute immunity is the court of appeals notes that it's a, a question we've not that's not been answered before whether a president is absolutely immune and donald trump argued uh, he argued three things um f- the first one was he said that article three courts which are courts established by congress and the constitution that article three courts lack the jurisdiction uh, to essentially look at his behavior while he's president. Um, and the court said uh, that, that that's wrong. Um, and they cited, this case reads like a government teacher's dream. It's <laughs> full of history. It's yeah. full of old cases. So the court said, no, that doesn't, that doesn't help us because the court in the past has checked president's activity. 
okay. depending on the authority for it. Uh, and then Trump, <clears throat> there he argues uh, the speech and debate clause comes in where uh, you, you can't, a, a sitting congressperson, a governmental official, uh, you can't arrest them or, or take them into custody for something that occurs during their official duties. So throughout the opinion is this reversion, the reference back to was Donald Trump engaged in a, an official activity uh, during the January 6th and leading up to that, and, or was that a political activity? Because the speech and debate clause will not protect political activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then <clears throat> the, the argument that the circuit court thought was, the, I think, the most far-fetched was the impeachment clause. Trump argued that because he was acquitted, he was impeached for those activities in the House, but the Senate acquitted him, refused to convict him. Because he was uh, not convicted, number one, double jeopardy prevents this criminal prosecution. Uh, And the court doesn't spend much time on that because the impeachment activity is not a criminal proceeding, number one. Number two, they're not the same offense, a bunch of technical double jeopardy stuff. Uh, And so that's a big deal, but the, the impeachment clause also says that if you are convicted in an impeachment proceeding, then you are also answerable to any other tribunal according to law. So and, uh, Trump's lawyers tried to, by negative implication, say that, well, since he wasn't convicted, then he wasn't answerable anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the court doesn't spend any time on that. So part of the tenets of our democracy, you've got a copy of the U.S. Constitution there. I do, hardcover. <laughs> you brought, hardcover. You brought a hardcover <laughs> bound copy of that. But this idea, I think this is one of the interesting things that a lot of water cooler conversation is around is there are supposed to be judicial restraints on the executive branch. There are supposed to be legislative constraints on the executive branch. And to a lot of people it seemed like this president was arguing that there were a lot fewer, that if you read the, read the Constitution carefully, there were a lot fewer constraints on that executive branch than you might think, and that caused a lot of people to fear authoritarianism and the right. breakdown of democracy. Were those overblown political comments, or was there some kind of you know real concern there that the precedent being set might be that whoever the next president, or the current president, Joe Biden, that they could engage in behavior that would be criminal without any repercussions yeah, ever. That, right. That, that's not true. The president's not going to escape that. There's There are several cases dating what Youngstown Sheet and Tube from in the 1950s where Truman took over the steel mills mm-hmm. because he needed steel for the Korean War. He did it without congressional authorization. The Supreme Court was quick to step in and say, you can't do that. Um, so there, in, and in the the war context, there are instances where the court will double check the president. So, the president's not uh, immune from judicial interference by any means. Yeah. Uh, but the court did in this immunity case; they did recognize that that the function of the presidency does have to be kept from harassing litigation. But the court said that's got to be weighed against the public's interest in. Uh, uh, efficient judicial criminal proceedings. Mm. And the public has a fundamental interest in seeing that the criminal law 
is followed and vindicated. So that was an argument that he made, that you're, you're just going to destroy the functionality of the presidency by right. looking at us all the time. Yeah, everybody's going to sue everybody all the time, right. every little, little thing. Right. right. Okay, and the right. court addressed that. <clears throat> so, so this... Does this go to the Supreme Court? Does the Supreme Court, are we waiting to find out if the US, U.S. Supreme Court will hear right. this appeal? Is he appealing? What's, I guess uh, He's got till Monday. Okay. He's got That's, till Monday yeah. to file something with the U.S. Supreme Court. This opinion, though, is so, is so tightly written um, that I don't, I don't see it getting reversed. I, I don't think he's going to be found to be immune. Mm-hmm. All right. Implications of that for the future? Any? I don't. I don't think so. Th- this this goes along with uh, the other the other cases where um, presidential power has been checked. I, I, no. I, this isn't uh, a, a far reach. I don't okay. think. I think yeah. this is very uh, in honors precedent yeah. in this situation. All right. Meanwhile, we have everything that unfolded yesterday, yeah. which is whether or not a state, in this case, the state of Colorado, and some voters there right. can remove. Now, nobody has answered, to be clear, none of the courts, as I understand it, are answering the question, was this an insurrection or not, even though it seems like a lot of people want the courts to right. weigh in on that. So what happened yesterday, broadly speaking? Well, um, broadly speaking, Colorado uh, said you can't... I th- some of these courts where this issue is presented, they are, they are have actually trying to have a fact-finding Mm-hmm. Um, journey to determine whether he engaged in insurrection, <clears throat> but Colorado said that you can't. You did engage in re- in insurrection, and they went through and analyzed that and determined that he was an insurrectionist and said, "Okay, you you're not. A, you can't be in our ballot under yeah. the Fourteenth Amendment." Um, so the the Colorado argu- Supreme Court, yeah, Colorado under the Fourteenth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution said, "We can't put you on your ballot because you are." An insurrectionist. Right. You engage in insurrection. Right. You engage in insurrection. You can't be on the ballot under Section 3 of the 14th. So the 14th is getting quite exercised <laughs> this <laughs> lately because... So, oh. and I, I don't think that's going to go... I, I don't think he's going to be kicked off the ballot anywhere. Um, you have to... I think, in my opinion, he's got a, the president, before that clause could be... Uh, used against him, there'd have to be a factual proceeding determining whether he engaged in insurrection uh, under the due process clause. And whose job would that be? That would be some trial court somewhere. Okay. Um, And I'm not sure how that would work either. Right. Um, So what we heard from the questions that the Supreme Court justices were asking, they seemed overall skeptical. Um, We don't know what they're going to decide. When do they have to decide they don't have a. The, usually, they'll they'll decide stuff by the end of June. But I'm ballots have been printed though. So I mean, so that's sure. yeah. I guess. Do they yeah. do they rush things through ever? Do they? Oh yeah, this is getting rushed. This through. is this is expedited. The, yep, okay. the immunity thing got rushed through. This at is the time through. we're recording this, we don't know what their decision is. We'll right. Put it that way. Right. That's, that's exactly right. <laughs> Good way to put it. Good way to put it. So as you look at this, it's a very interesting time, and the. Te- the resilience of the system is is being tested in some ways, and there were a lot of concerns about the political makeup of the court shifting, right. accusations for court packing in the future, and how the politics might impact the makeup of the Supreme Court. Are you seeing anything that would indicate that these justices are 
are not doing their jobs when it comes to these cases that are coming in, in front of them. No, I think that's that's been a real positive, at least in my opinion, because you're right, This all of this litigation is really testing the judiciary and the judiciary's distance from the, the mm-hmm. electoral process. And it is heartening to see that the judges, for the most part, aren't persuaded by that. They're, they're political, they're leaving their political affiliations outside of the courtroom uh, and really looking at the law and precedent. So th- that's, that makes me hopeful. Yeah. Except for the Fifth Circuit in uh, Texas. I was just going to say, testing things. I was just going to say, let's leave it on hopeful. And then you had to throw that in there. No. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll have you back as these stories Great. continue to unfold. Mike Thompson, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. The legal age of consent for marriage was in the spotlight for members of the House State Affairs Committee. Under current South Dakota law, children between the ages of 16 and 18 can marry with the consent of a parent or guardian. Representative Caden Whitman sponsored a bill that would have changed that. Listen in as the Sioux Falls Democrat starts the discussion on House Bill 1154. This legislation advocates for a crucial amendment to our state's laws, one that sets the minimum age of marriage to 18. Between 2000 and 2020, 838 minors entered into marriage in South Dakota, as recorded by the South Dakota Department of Vital Records. Of these 838 marriages, 81% were minor girls being wed to adult men. Parental consent for underage marriage is often touted as a safeguard, but is a flawed argument for several reasons. When it comes to marriage, parental consent does not necessarily ensure the well-being or the best interests of the child involved. One or both parents may have their own motivations, cultural pressures, or misconceptions about marriage that could lead them to consent without fully considering the consequences for their child. In situations where there may be familial or societal pressure, a child's ability to freely consent or dissent may be compromised. It is our job in the legislature to prioritize the protection of South Dakota's children by setting a minimum age for marriage to ensure young individuals can make informed decisions about their futures. Any further proponents of House Bill 1154? Good morning, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee. Yvonne Taylor with the South Dakota Advocacy Network for Women. Um, We do rise in support of this bill. We think it's almost purely a matter of common sense. You won't let these folks legally have a beer, um, but you would let them enter into a marriage. We, We really think that this is a necessary step and urge your support. Seeing no further proponent testimony, is there any opponent testimony on House Bill 1154? Morning, Mr. Chair, members of the committee, Norman Woods, Family Voice Action. I think we can all agree that 16 and 17 year olds getting married probably shouldn't be common and it's probably not often that it's wise but still we have three concerns first of all that marriage is the problem so let's say this is a bad situation the guy is abusive or coercive or there's something dangerous about this situation that's the problem the marriage isn't the problem there's probably somebody already breaking the law already being coercive already being abusive if this is a dangerous situation. So that's where we should focus on, not the fact that they've agreed with parental consent to get married. Second, you as a state would be saying that 
in these situations, parents don't know how to protect their kids. Because again, parental consent is required for this. So theoretically, you've got, let's say a 17-year-old, a 19-year-old, at least one of their parents, and at least one willing official, whether it's a justice of the peace or the pastor, who are looking at this situation and saying, yes, this is okay. So you would be making the statement that, you know, the parents don't know what's best here, you as the state do, and we would caution against that. And then finally, that sex before marriage is a good thing. We have got get to talk about all the awkward things here in the state house sometimes. Right now, the age of consent is 16 here in South Dakota. So if you raise the marriage age to 18, you as a state would be saying, you can hook up, but you can't get married. And again, we would caution against that. Representative Whitman said that this marriage may endanger their personal development, but I would submit the opposite. For those of you who are married, for those of you who have kids, oftentimes these kind of commitments are what further your personal development. We will offer the prime sponsor a rebuttal to the opposition testimony that we have heard. Thank you, Mr. Speaker and members of the committee. Um, I'm, I'm disturbed by the op opposition testimony presented and the insinuation that children are getting married, children, 16, in order to participate in sexual activity. I understand that there may be exceptional cases where individuals under 18 wish to marry, but it is our job to prioritize the well-being and interests of minors in our state. In cases of pregnancy or other extenuating circumstances, the default should be to protect minors from the potential harms associated with early marriage, not to marry them off to the person that impregnated them. Setting the minimum age to 18 ensures that our children have more time to develop emotionally, intellectually, and socially for entering into this extremely significant and lifelong commitment. With that, I urge your support of 1154. Thank you. Point we will close testimony and move to questions of the committee. Are there any committee questions? No, go ahead. Representative Hanson. Thank you, Mr. Leader. For the prime sponsor. Okay, so there was a couple of mentions of the sort of the 17-year-old and the 19-year-old situation. Um, can you can you envision any time where you think that would be an okay situation for those two people to get married? And isn't that a problem with your bill? If you agree that there's there are some situations where a 17-year-old and a 19-year-old, that situation would like be okay to have those two married. Mr. Chair. Go ahead. I do not think it is ever okay for anyone under the age of 18 to get married. I believe that if you are 17 and your partner is 19, just push pause, wait one more year. There's no reason for you to get married when you're 17 when you can just wait one more year. That's all we're asking. Further questions of the committee, Representative Drury. Thank you, Representative, for bringing this bill. I also think that we do a lot of things as parents. Is the crux of your bill so we protect children from entering into a lifelong contract when maybe they have not reached an age of maturity. You know, there's a lot of other things we don't let children do before the age of 18. Is this just making it more equitable across the bar? Yes, I do believe that this legislation, if passed, would align South Dakota with the fact that there are very specific things you cannot do in our state until you are 18. You cannot vote, you cannot smoke, you cannot gamble, you cannot enlist in the military and defend our country. I think that this bill is a common sense way for us to align South Dakota's values and say, you are 18, you are able to make your own decisions at that time. Representative Rayfeld. Question in regards to parental consent. Once 
a marriage takes place under the age of 18, does, do the parents still have parental rights? No, so when a child is married in South Dakota, they are automatically emancipated, so their parents essentially relinquish their parental rights when that child is 16 if they enter into a marriage. We will move on to committee discussion and or action. Representative Wangses. This is very well intended. I, I do have a concern when you talk, you know, the, the example of a 19, 17 year old or something like that. If there's a baby involved and you refuse them the, the, the ability to get married at that time, what, I mean, you've just got, you know, a baby there with, a, with an incomplete family. And that issue, without addressing the, con, the age of consent part with this, I mean, that, that's a real big concern for me. Representative Drury? I move do pass on House Bill 1154. Motion by Representative Drury to do pass on House Bill 1154. Comments on your motion? I just think that this is really what we're doing is we're trying to protect kids in South Dakota. I can't imagine a better way to protect young kids, young mothers, than to give them some guardrails until they reach the age of maturity. The older we can get this set, this bar raised, is a better protection. It will help the child stay in school longer because most of the young women that get married at 16 end up, you know, they drop out. So I don't think it's that we're trying to attack parental rights here. We're trying to protect them. We can't go back and say it worked for me 50 years ago because, you know, probably 80 years ago my great aunt got married when she was 14. Now, would we allow that? I doubt it. We would, none of us would really be happy with a sixth or seventh grader being married and the trauma that would follow that. So I just think that this is a good bar for us to have in South Dakota, and I support it. Representative Hanson. Mr. Chair, I have a substitute motion. State your motion. I move to defer House Bill 1154 to the 41st legislative day. Got a motion, a substitute motion by Representative Hansen to defer House Bill 1154 to the 41st day. Comments on your motion? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Well, you know, if the goal is to avoid sexual exploitation of minors, which I agree with and I've worked towards in the past, then perhaps the better bill would be to raise the age of consent from 16 to 18. I've got a couple of comments. I'm going to be supporting the 41st day motion. And it's an interesting topic, isn't it? It gets right at the core of some of our uh, foundational pieces of society, starting with the, the family. And so if I am a supporter of families and of marriage, why am I against this bill? It's because they keep talking about beer and cigarettes and war. Beer and cigarettes are bad for you. That doesn't mean I've never had a beer and it doesn't mean I've never had a cigarette. It means they're bad for you. And that's why we don't let you use them until you're 18 or 21. Marriage is good for you. Marriage is a good thing. How do I know that? I looked at the American Happiness Survey. I don't know if anyone's familiar with this. It is the longest-serving, most valid longitudinal survey of happiness. There's a 30-point difference between married people and unmarried people in terms of how happy they are when they're adults. Happiness seems like a good thing to pursue. What about children? Children of two-parent families, that is a stronger indicator of the success of those children than income than the educational attainment of the parents, than the race or any other characteristic you can find. Marriage, having these is a very key thing. How does it help kids? Kids do better academically. They don't drop out as much, they get better grades. Kids have better lifelong income. Kids have less trouble in school and at the law. These are good things. These are good things for our society. 
and to come in and say that we need less marriage, that we can sit in judgment of every single 17-year-old and say, none of you have a situation that's valid. We should make it illegal for all of you, I think is wrong. Madam Secretary, please call the roll. The motion to reject the bill passed on an 8-5 to five vote. You can listen to full debate on this bill and others online at sdlegislature.gov. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. We are welcoming Joel Allen back to the show today. He's a moderator for the Braver Angels debates. These are debates held across the nation, including at Dakota Wesleyan University in Mitchell. There, Joel is what's known as the Blue Representative, and his fellow moderator, Jeff Pospisil, is the Red Voice, and they're both gathered in the uh, Dan and Diane Deslorius studio on the campus of DWU in Mitchell for an update. Joel, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Laurie. We've had a great time. I've really appreciated being on before, and it's fun to be on again, so thanks for having us. And Jeff, we are welcome, or we're excited to have you in the conversation as well. Yeah, thank you, Lori. I'm uh, enjoying listening, and and uh, I'm excited about what we're about. So. Yeah, for for people who don't understand for sure what Braver Angels is trying to do, specifically what you're trying to do in the community of Mitchell, Jeff, let's start with you. Help people understand what this is all about and why it matters right now. You know, I think. A lot of our culture, we're used to watching people deba- debate and fight. We've seen the presidential debates. We've seen other debates maybe on YouTube or on the screen. And then when it's our turn to engage in the debate, we don't feel qualified. So I hear time and time again how uh, people will come up afterwards and say, you know, I really agreed with this. I really, you know, or I disagreed with this. And it just doesn't happen in the public because, and again, I think a lot of times we just don't feel qualified. We haven't prepared enough. We haven't practiced. And this is a way to say everybody's welcome to the conversation. Everybody's welcome to participate, share your ideas and experiences. You don't have to be polished. Mm -hmm. That's the more important thing is can we engage together and not just be on the sidelines when we're talking about controversial issues. We don't have to be polished. Do we have to be informed? Like, how does that impact, like, when you come to the conversation? And I want to stick with you, Jeff, for a minute, because I think what you said is really important there. Like, I'm finding in my life a lot of people are are coming to a conversation after they feel like they are armed with the right information. And often that's information that, you know, reflects what they already believe um, so that they can be more polished. But what I'm trying to convince them is to come, you know, more open to, you know, to listening and to sharing how they feel, um, not just what they found online. Help. You know, so say more about that, because I think that's a super yeah. interesting place to begin. Because our concern is not necessarily about being right or the winner necessarily on any import, any issue, but it is really to bring your personal experiences. Because even as we were listening to your last segment, I was yeah. thinking, okay, my my grandma was born was married at a young age and so was my stepmother are there exceptions and it was just even trying to be be able to debate debate that (laughs) from my personal experiences and this is the first time i had to think about the issue and i think at least those experiences would have been valid but they're they're what is what good does it do to the whole conversation if i just keep them to myself right so yeah joel jump in here and and let's talk more about the sort of the personal experiences and the idea of um, being qualified to come and have the conversation 
Well, it's interesting. I was actually in that uh, State Affairs Committee meeting when they had the debate on the on uh, the uh, marriageability age. Yeah. And it's funny, even in this conversation, because I can tell from what Jeff said that I would disagree with him on this yeah. topic. <laughs> I'm very much for uh, or in increasing the marriageability age to 18. But uh, so it's just really been fun for Jeff and I, because we even before uh, we became Braver Angels, partners and moderators, we did some other podcasting on, on biblical studies, actually. Mm. And uh, and so we've had this kind of red blue kind of co set of conversations in the past. But but Brave Angels really is committed to uh, at every level of organization to have people on both sides of the coin. So we're going to be going to the convention this summer and we're going to bring some students and one of them is red, one of them is blue, and they have to register together as a team and be accepted together as a team. So <laughs> it's, it's a very it, it's a very central to uh, what this kind of pursuit after the truth, the truth is all about. And Jeff is the one that came up with the idea of, of changing the name to Courageous Conversations, which yeah. I loved. I think yeah. that's a good description of what these uh, Brave Angels discussions are all about. Okay, so here's a big question that I'm wondering, and you both can address this, but we'll start with Joel's voice and then um, um, invite Jeff in this time. Um, it's not about winning, even though we all have this temptation to, you know, be validated or heard or and, and even win, like get get the mm -hmm. zinger in, you know, like sometimes we're drawn to that in, in spite of ourselves, in spite of, you know, maybe wanting to be patient. So a big question would be, it, are you trying to win in the center and be stronger voices than something that might be more fringe on the left or fringe on the right? Are we gathering together with the goal? <laughs> yeah, see where I'm going there? Joel, sure. start, yeah. start with that because that's one of the, the big questions here. Is this, a, is this a conversation for people who are moderates? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, although we've seen in the past when we've done these, there have been people that are very strong and not only strong, but I mean, moderates can be strong in their opinion, too, mm -hmm. but uh, but very extreme. And but and I haven't yet seen a circumstance where that uh, boiled or it, it devolved into name calling and that type of thing. We've really seen the the, the way these debates are structured. The, at the beginning of every debate, there's, you kind of rehearse the values of that debate. So the debate, the value is we are not here to win. We're here as a community pursuit for the truth. And that's, you know, that's what our value is. And then, and then hearing a position from one side and then to the other, the one side to the other. And in the way it's structured where the people asking questions don't ask the question directly to the person that's speaking, that the previous speaker, but they ask the question to the debate moderator. It just kind of, re it's like a pressure valve release. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it really is a model, the Braver Angels mo model, which we're you know calling these courageous conversations, under the Braver Angels protocol, uh, they they work. They really do work, and we've had some you know some really f exciting success, especially with the debate uh, we did last time on the lake, uh, our mm, lake, yeah. which very cont contentious topic, twenty five million dollar project, and so yeah, Joel or Jeff, sorry, what would you add to that, Jeff? Yeah. I wouldn't say that it moves people towards the center. I, I want to say it humanizes both sides. Yeah, is what I way. would say. Um, when you hear somebody, for example, we had a, a red-blue conversation where you pair up, that was one of our events, where you pair up somebody that's red with somebody that's blue, somebody that's conservative with somebody that's liberal, and you, you kind of went through the life story. How did you come to your 
beliefs or your uh, political positions. And again, it makes it makes the person not just um, stereo. In my case, I'm I'm the red one, so it makes them not a stereotypical liberal. <laughs> they are a real person that grew up in South Dakota and just has different positions from me. And you can find places where you. Can, connect but it, it, I do think that's one of the main things is it humanizes and it also I think it fleshes out the other side of the argument you might know from your own experience well, why you believe certain things but you may not understand how could somebody believe differently from you all of a sudden that gives them the opportunity yeah. so part of when we say courageous conversations it's not just getting up and talking at the mic but yeah. it's also being courageous enough to listen mm -hmm. and to, to really try to hear what the other people are saying. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a great description. Yeah, so this idea, you know, we talk about that the community pursuit for the truth and, and mm -hmm. personal experience and lived experience and humanizing other people, then I feel like it's important to also bring up this idea of data. And, you know, beyond the personal story, beyond the anecdote, like what's really happening broadly, because you might have an experience that is an outlier from right. what's really happening. And that also needs to be maintained when you're searching for community truth. So, Jeff, you start with that one in data versus anecdote. What does that bring up for you? Oh, and I'm an accountant by trade <laughs> and I love data. I mean, and so for me, that's the hard part where I know you're not supposed to bring in statistics and you're not supposed to argue those things because partially I know that you can find statistics to support whatever you want to believe. Right. So that's that is a challenge for me. Um, I, I do think a lot of times what we do is when we use data and statistics, we use it like a club or a silence button, something like that. And I think that's more of the intent of it. And so I, I don't mind people bringing in, you know, 45% of people, blah, blah, blah. And as an example, my grandmother experienced this or something like that. You know, that that's a way to at least personalize it and not just be... Um, just, just the, the, the bludgeon that it sometimes is, the data is. Yeah. Can, one, yeah. one of the things we do try to discourage is uh, to, uh, for people to challenge each other's uh, references and, you know, to require or to, in other words, we uh, try to keep the debate in the area of ideas and, and experiences, but then if, you know, it's easy to just kind of throw away what someone says because mm -hmm. you disagree with their source. And so we try to discourage that and try to keep the conversation in the zone of, of what you believe and what you've experienced. Yeah. All right. So a story uh, can be used as a club, too. I mean, a, a story yeah, can be used as a But this happens. Here's a yeah. crime that was committed. And that for it means everyone in this community is you know capable of committing a crime. So how do you handle in the context of the Braver Angels conversations when, when somebody does have a really painful experience? Mm. So we'll go back to the marriage conversation we heard earlier in the show, you know, somebody's grandmother was married at the age of 15 and she was miserable and abused and this terrible thing happened to her. And therefore, you know, she's bringing a very different, um, you know, personal experience to the conversation. Is that a matter then, Joel, of, of ref, you know, reflecting some kind of empathy or like what does the protocol say about some of those really difficult personal experiences? I don't know if the protocol really speaks to that and in, in that level of specificity, but mm. I, I think that uh, the, the fact that once you are beginning to humanize each other, those kinds of experiences can often come out and where someone has a very specific 
experience. And I think that what, what we, we, what the, where that kind of falls out is it just helps us to increasingly humanize the person. In other words, if I'm sitting here thinking, how in the world could a person believe or think what you think? And then you hear a story of theirs that where it, it, it allows you to say, oh, well, I, now I can understand why you think that. I think your story is, you know, it's, it's an exception that may prove the rule, but there, so there may be reason to, to not uh, agree with it, even though it was a very powerful meeting in terms of like setting some policy based on a person's experience, yeah. but it can help, help us to humanize each other. And so that's, I think, the, the part that, um, that personal experiences like that can play. Yeah, I, wanna do, I do wanna look ahead a little bit to let people know that on Tuesday, uh, next week on the 13th at 7 p.m., the Stark Lectureship with Tate Win Means happens, and then the event Courageous Conversations talks about open primaries. And then yes. on February 20th, there's there's more going on here. So let's talk about what's coming up ahead. Um, Jeff, why don't you start with this and the open primaries and how you're looking at these things that could potentially be ballot questions in, in front of voters coming up. And I'm going to hand this one off to Joel because he is going to moderate this one. Right. Perfect. Right. Okay, Joel. So, yeah, you go. Yeah. So we have, we decided that we wanted to focus our, our three debates this year. Uh, well, with now the new name, Courageous Conversations, on uh, what are the three most likely initiated measures that will be on the on the November ballot in South Dakota. So it's kind of a South Dakota focused theme this time. But what the value of this is that you know when people come to these, every South Dakota voter this November is going to have to be making a decision on how they're going to, uh, what they're going to vote on these initiated measures. And so they are uh, the top two open primaries is the first one on February 20, eliminating the food tax on March 19, and that's when Jeff will do. And then uh, um, uh, Aletheia is going to do the South Dakota's con uh, constitutional amendment on securing a woman's right to an abortion in the first two pri uh, trimesters. So I will be doing uh, top two open primaries. And so we are actually going to have two representatives from the South Dakota uh, open primaries initiative that will be there. And if so, someone hasn't signed the ballot or the, uh, the, the um, uh, not the ballot, but to sign the um, petition. The, Petition, petition, thank yeah, you, okay, word yep. wasn't coming to my mind, yep. to sign that petition, uh, then uh, they'll be able to at this, uh, it, w when we meet. But um, so, so we are going to have a conversation on whether or not we should have a top two open primary. So the mm -hmm. top two open primary works a little bit differently. Essentially, all the, na all the names for each uh, one of the positions and the, the offices will go into one kind of category and everybody just picks their first one their top pick and then the two two top two of those will go into the fall would would proceed onto the general election so um so it's it's a very a simplified way to have a open primary whereas right now if you're not a republican you can't vote in the republican primary and democrats and independents can vote in the democratic primary so yeah. it's a it's a way of of um promoting centrism and to uh, increase voter participation because a lot of times uh, people that are independents really can't vote. If they don't want right. to vote for the Democrat, and then they, they, they can't vote in the Republicans. So it opens the primary up. Yeah. All right. We are going to so, put yeah. some information on all this up on our website after today's show at sdpb.org slash news. Um, Jeff, I'm wondering if you might leave us with 
um, for people who are, you know, they're interested in coming to the conversation, maybe they're going to sign up, but they like just the idea of what you're talking about. Is there a question that you would bring to, you know, dinner with friends when a, when a controversial issue sort of raises its head that would be a good way to, you know, set a tone? You know, when I think about this, because, and, and I'm not the best person to do this, when I'm at the dinner table with my wife, we tend to go to data and we go to Google and say, that's going to answer our question. So like That's but, why I'm asking you. Because yeah, <laughs> I know, because I've made this mistake a number of times. So I would say the better question to ask is, so why do you believe that? Mm-hmm. And just to even to, to be able to listen to them and maybe ask some follow-up questions, you know, um, that, that I think would start it out better than you're not accusing them. You're not saying, you're not saying, why do you believe that? You're saying, why do you believe that? And just engage, start that conversation there. Probably, I, I think we're emotional creatures. I think that's why we talk about stories because a lot of us were not really data driven. If we look back at it, we use data to validate our opinions, mm. uh, not necessarily to form our opinions. So if you start diving into the why do you believe that and get the story behind it, that would be probably the most helpful thing. All right, we'll start with why do you believe that and we'll have both of you, we'll invite both of you back for these conversations in the future. Meanwhile, we'll put some links up to Braver Angels um, and what's happening at Dakota Wesleyan and Mitchell up on our website. But Joel Allen and Jeff Pospisil, thank you so much for being here with the, with us. It's just a delight. Thank you, Lori. This you. has been a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The Year of the Dragon begins tomorrow with the start of the Lunar New Year. We're going to check in on a few events happening in western South Dakota where frontier history is intertwined with Chinese culture. We'll check in with Homestake Adams Research and Cultural Center Education Director Tara Richards ahead of celebrations for a look back at cultural fusion and a preview of current events. Tara Richards is with us now on the phone. Tara, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you, Lori. How are you? I am doing well. We're going to get to these events in just a minute. But first, this is uh, more than just a celebration of uh, Lunar New Year. It is a look at history and, and culture in Deadwood. Tell me a little bit for people who are maybe new to the area. Um, ground us in what history we're talking about and kick us off. All right. Well, the um, Chinese population here in Deadwood started with Deadwood. Uh, they came for the gold rush and uh, made quite a, an impact on this community. <clears throat> One of them was Feely uh, Wong, and um, he was a, a merchant, a businessman. He was one of the Chinese community leaders, and his great-granddaughter um, lives in California, and um, she actually still helps sponsor what we still do as a Chinese New Year celebration, kind of in honor of them. Um, here at Deadwood History, we have a, a program every year. So Yeah, let's talk a little year, bit about some tomorrow. of the... Uh, um, yeah, uh, we're going to put links up to that on our website, but the Chinese New Year celebration for youth is Saturday, uh, February 10th. That kicks off at 11 o'clock local time, goes to 1 um, that's free to participants, but you should uh, uh, register. Register, yeah, required. you have to register yeah. for it, and yep. we'll give people that link. And then on February fifteenth next week, uh, there's a preservation Thursday 
conversation at the Homestick Adams Research and Cultural Center as well. So we'll put all that, that information up. up. Go ahead. That that'll that'll dive a little bit deeper into the um, history of the the Chinese culture here in Deadwood. Yeah, a lot of people don't you know didn't realize that that they lived here. So. Right. So there's been some archaeological excavations. Tell me a little bit about some of the objects and stories that have been unearthed. Um, they they do it periodically here in Deadwood. Um, they. Uh, Anytime they're going to put down a permanent surface, they do some sort of dig. And uh, one of them was down by where um, Tin Lizzie's currently is at. Mm-hmm. Uh, they found lots of stuff. They found um, bottles and um, different levels. They found different items. So it was very interesting. And Mike, actually, Mike Rungi, who will be mm-hmm. doing the preservation Thursday, um, is better equipped to answer those questions uh he's kind of the expert in that here so tell me a little bit about what the kids are doing this weekend the kids are going to um uh participate in a red envelope ceremony that is a ceremony in chinese culture where during the lunar new year um Certain people hand out red envelopes with money in them. Um, generally, the youth receive them from elders. Um, it's it's just kind of a fun thing. They um, they expect it actually in their culture, and there's a there's a polite way to ask for it, and then mm-hmm. you 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 receive this envelope with money and you say thank you and it's a good wishing and a good greeting for just to bring a positive um beginning to the new year so yeah. they will be doing that we have those uh we actually get those donated by Edith Wong who is the great granddaughter of Feely Wong so um that's how one of the ways she still helps uh with our celebration they also get to do a fun craft um, this year we're making a dragon lantern since it is the year of the dragon. And that's how Chinese New Year is ended um, on the 26th, I believe. Uh, they end Chinese New Year with a lantern ceremony. So they'll have a lantern for that. They also get to um, listen to a book this year. So we have a local author. Her name is Robin Carmody. And she wrote a book about Deadwood's Chinatown. Yeah. All right. It's it's titled Nano Where Was Deadwood's Chinatown and they go through it's kind of a part cartoon, uh part live looking book with fantastic pictures. So yeah. she's going to read that to them. Tara, I want to jump in and just like I'm fascinated by the Wong family still participating in this and, you know, treasuring uh the the legacy of Mr. Wong. Um why do you think that it's important for kids and we just have like 30 seconds left for kids in Deadwood today to sort of understand this part of local history? Well, um, it's local history that, that comes from a really long ways away. And I think it's, it's important for them to learn that um, Deadwood was sort of an area where lots of different cultures combined Mm. And we would really like them to learn about all the cultures of people who lived here or still currently live here. Yeah, have those connections. Tara Richards, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. 
You're very welcome. Thank you. Have a great day. Have a good weekend. We'll put that information up on our website as well so you can learn more about that. But for now, that is our show for today, and we hope that it served you on Mondays in the moment. It is time for our annual look at those Super Bowl commercials from the celebrities to the politics to the Taylor Swift effect. We'll recap the big day and its intersection with the media landscape, including the potential impact of the first ever South Dakota Tourism Super Bowl ad buy. Plus, the Winter Ranger emerged from his burrow to see his shadow. Now he joins us on In the Moment for an update on the Badlands in February. Our show is produced by Ellen Kester and Ari Youngeman. Our executive producer is Kara Hetland. Our news director is Josh Chilson. Videographer Jordan Henderson and engineer Colton Nicholson are invaluable to us throughout the week. Um, always, if you can't tune in live, you can find us as a podcast. Wherever you get your podcast, just search for SDPB. And in the moment, from all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.